Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno, and today on the show, I welcome Molly Chester. In 2010, Molly was a private chef in Los Angeles when she had this realization. The nutrient density of food is directly correlated with the nutrient density of the soil in which it is grown. So, in her quest to cook the most nutritious food, she and her husband, John, made the obvious choice. They started a farm. Now, initially, they were looking for a modest 10 acres. And what they ended up with was Apricot Lane Farms, a 234-acre farm in Moore Park, California. Over the last 10 years, Molly and John have transformed this conventional farm into a regenerative biodynamic paradise with 75 different kinds of fruits and vegetables, 18 different species of avocados, and free-range chickens, cattle, and sheep. But they weren't just farming plants and animals. They were also farming the soil, bringing packed, arid, dead soil back to life. Their extraordinary journey was shared with the world in the award-winning documentary, The Biggest Little Farm. Now, with a plethora of nutrient-rich ingredients at her fingertips, Molly has penned a stunning cookbook, a celebration of organic, local, and seasonal recipes, the Apricot Lane Farms Cookbook. Now, in our conversation, Molly and I discuss the regenerative techniques that brought Apricot Lane soil back to life. She recounts the highs and the lows of this process, and we probe the Tao of farming, the process of observing nature and aligning with its course. And of course, Molly recommends delectable seasonal recipes from her new cookbook. Now, if you're interested in courses about regenerative farming, permaculture, and soil health with teachers like Kiss the Grounds, Finian Makepeace, Dr. Zach Bush, and Paul Hawken, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing. That would mean a lot to me. And leave a review, if you're so inclined, on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Molly Chester. Okay, Molly Chester, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Great Thank to be you with for you. Having me. Nice to be here. Yeah, so I um, I'm wearing my Apricot Lane Farms hat. This one is a relatively new variety, but as I showed you before we jumped on, I have the significantly more crusty version <laughs> here for those of you enjoying this on YouTube or other video platforms. And uh, I, I'm sure you have some crusty ones. I know John does, um, as he that is featured very heavily in in the film. They are <laughs> but, uh, very. You definitely have like your go out hats and your uh, you know day to day hats. Yeah, this one I have vowed to to not work out in, and so far I've done a, a pretty decent job, but it's pretty fresh still, because I, I came to the farm um, about a month ago or so with my friend Casey Means, the doctor, and had a wonderful visit, and it's 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 cool because I get to see the farm 
almost like I see a nephew or something. I see it like once every couple of years and I say, oh my God, how you've grown, you know, like you would say to a nephew, but you see it every single day. So it's probably a little bit more difficult for you to see how much incredible progress that you make, but it is uh, just stunning. So I love coming up there. I love to hear that. I love, you know, we have, we have different friends that we've known since we were little as everyone does in the sense of apricot lane farms being young. And I love when they come back later on because you're right. I don't totally have that perspective and, um, it feels good because we've been on similar journeys too. If we found ourselves back then connecting, we're both in like a sphere of, you know, caring about the earth, caring about connection. And so it's nice to see that you think it's improved. Yeah. Well, it certainly has. And, you know, my first trip to the farm, well, actually that's not true. I I made a, a trip once prior, but the first significant trip, um, was our, uh, the was at the inception of Commune. So we were just like the smallest little team and our very first offsite, the very first month that we were in existence um, was to the farm. And, uh, and we still have, a, a, many of those people are still with us and obviously we've grown as you have, but that was just such a seminal uh, experience for our team and I'll always remember that, so. Thank you guys for being so generous and congratulations on this. Um, I guess I could really only call it a piece de resistance. I've been just in France, but it's really just a masterpiece. Um, I think the last time I saw you, I told you there are many books out there in the world, but this really piece of art uh, stands on its own. So well done. I, I know how what the gestation period of a book looks like. And it's not simple. So congratulations Thank you so much. That means a lot to me to hear that from you. Cause I do know what crosses your plate and <laughs> yeah. so just deep thanks for that. Yeah. Well, I will also add that. So last week, um, was my birthday. Yay. And Happy so, birthday. thank you. Uh, 52 orbits. Um, and, uh, so for my birthday party, I convened, 12 of my very, very good friends for um, a dinner party. And I collaborated with our chef from uh, Commune Topanga, Ali, to cook from the cookbook this past Saturday. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So we spent the whole, and then we talked about it and Ali talked about it and I talked about it. So I'll I'll share with you some of the stuff that we made. We made right from the cookbook. Oh my Um, gosh. This is so cool. Thanks. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, it was was, Yeah, and it was such a treat for all the people that came because we got to talk about, you know, the farm and what you guys have done and uh, and then just represent it and reflect, you know, all of your culinary brilliance. So um, so we did this Cristini with blackberry fig jam with the caramelized onions. Oh my God. And, and the chef and Ali actually made the homemade ricotta as well with it. And it was insane. We did the squash and ginger soup, um, which is, has a good little kick, nice kick to it. Mm -hmm. So this was a very like warm fall feast. So, um, so that's on page 108. I, I, I'm, you see, like a, a cookbook really starts to take on a dimension when it starts to get properly dog-eared, it. right? Yes. You know? 
Um, I'm still at the beginning process, you know, when these get yeah. discolored and there's like a <laughs> coffee stain here, you know, it's like, then, you're yeah. like in. Mm-hmm. um, and then we did the slow roast chicken with the, mm-hmm. with the lemon fennel crust. And I, I, that's gotta be probably a staple in, in your world, right? It is. I love that you did that one. That, um, that evolved because when you work with pasture birds, so at the farm, all of our birds have, you know, more room to roam. And the meat, I found that when chefs, great chefs would cook that meat, the breasts always came out nice, but the legs would often have like a bloodiness to them and it didn't, and then it was like really tough. And so we played for a long time and realized that you actually have to cook um, pastured meat almost more like a shoulder cut of another animal. It has to be treated like a... um, like a, yeah, a tougher cut. And so you have to cook it low and slow as you would those things. And when you do that, then those, those legs and thighs become really delicious and fall off the bone. So that's where that came from. And we cook it maybe once a week up at the farm kitchen. I bet. Yeah. It's gotta be, especially like a wintertime staple because it's such a, it's made for such a wholesome meal. And I did notice that it, you the roasting period was longer and that you actually remove the breasts I think first and you yeah. keep uh, some of the the darker meat in for a longer period and so I thought it's interesting and these are the things that as a student of nature and of food that that you learn and you pick up um, totally. by just being in it <laughs> in the process totally. right yeah definitely um, you do. And then let's see, we did the Mexican uh, cacao avocado pudding. That was insane. Ah, And that is a riff on a, um, we had an avocado pudding that it wasn't chocolate. It went in a different direction. But in the early days, I was trying to make a smoothie and it came out so thick. It was like a pudding. And we served that for so many odd things on the farm when we had only like 20 people here. I remember one time a a super beloved goat died. (laughs) So I made this, I'm like laughing just because it's odd, but the goat was sad at the time. And uh, so I made avocado pudding and we all sat around and like toasted Guppy the goat with the avocado pudding. So it has roots. It has roots. Yeah. Well, Allie had just come back from Mexico. So she actually had some cacao from from Mexico. Um, And uh, one thing that we didn't try that is a you know, on my hit list is the, um, the avocado ice cream. So I can't wait to try that. Um, you got to try that one. Yeah. That, so John, whenever we were starting writing the book, he's always wanted like an avocado ice cream product line. He's just talked about avocado ice cream forever. And he said, I want a dairy-free avocado ice cream. So we set to work and it took us a long time, but where we got is the creamiest. You just really don't even know that it's dairy free. So it's super creamy. It's got lots of egg yolks. So it's very nutrient dense and it just totally works. So I do look forward to you trying that. And if you get geeky, the Nabal avocados, which we have here, so we'll sell them at the farmer's markets in the fall. And uh, they are, of all of them, they're the best with that ice cream. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you because you have, if my memory is correct, maybe 17 or 18 different special varieties of avocados now. Is that right? We do. Yeah. We actually call that area kind of the avocado conservation project. Just kind of, we made it up because <laughs> it, it is true that what you get in the grocery store is half 
That's what yeah. it is. Every now and then it's lamb hass, but it's large majority is hass. And um, we just had, you know, we wanted to expand that and to just save some of these varietals that are not widely used because they have thinner skins or uh, don't right. store as well, or <clears throat> they're confusing because like maybe you eat them when they still have green skins and that's not what people are used to with Hass. And so uh, we've come to know and love many different varieties like Reed, that Nabal. I actually found Nabal because I read online that um, it's avocado grow. They called it avocado growers tree that they always have just for themselves on the farm so it's like uh -huh. ooh, i have to get some of that <laughs> right. and it's true it's like very nutty and creamy and so yeah we we love the and we like to cook from variety you know we like to really get to know um the difference of all these foods and then build the dish around that yeah well biodiversity is your middle name at, at this juncture <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, the Hass variety, they have thicker skin and they're of a certain size that I think has contributed to their popularity because you can ship them and pack them pretty totally. easily. Right. And so then people get used to that taste and then that's what they want. But I think what you guys are doing is really cool and how much fun to have, a laboratory at your fingertips right it is super fun and then it also enables you to have avocados pretty much year-round we have maybe right. like a three-week period where we won't have them but and the has quite honestly it's an amazing it's still one of my favorites so there's a reason mm -hmm. why it's as popular as it is but it's just not the only game in town there's a few others that are also delicious right and seasonality as far as kind of culinary philosophy is such a huge part of your deal um, and anyone that's really focused on farm to table. So normally Hass, and not to hover too much on avocados, but I, I know the farm has a huge prevalence of avocados and you inherited some of that um, and then had to reconfigure uh, considerably. We can get into that. Um, but uh, I think it's... Um, it's really just very, very cool to be playing with a whole diversity um, of of avocados, and I'm I'm curious if you've ever done any blind taste testing there. <laughs> Ooh, blind taste testing would be fun. We have had yeah. kind of guacamole contests and things like that, but I don't know that I've done blind tasting. But it does um, it does bring up a good idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I want to try. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Participatory Christmas. Yeah, you can do. yeah, exactly. But it, but, uh, you know, we've gotten so used to being able to um, kind of dial up in the palm of our hand kind of instantaneous delivery of a Haas avocado 24-7, 365 days a year. And that's just really not how nature was designed to function. So, 100%. Um, no, that's yeah. what... So when, we, when I first started cooking, I... Um, it really was, I was drawn to food because of how what you eat can affect how you feel. That was really, I never wanted yeah. to be like the next top chef. I just wanted to learn how to cook so that I could learn how to heal really. And then, um, but once you go deeper into that, then I started learning about these amazing traditional cultures that knew how to um, work with food using techniques like soaking and sprouting and fermenting. And that was super interesting. And I just remember carrying around 
um, Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon, which is a book that mm-hmm. tells lots of those kind of techniques and just saying, this is my favorite book. And I don't even know if I fully understood it at that point. But um, once I went down that rabbit hole, I realized that it actually is about the choices the farmer makes that then enable you to have nutrient dense food in the kitchen to then maximize with nutrient dense techniques. So we started seeking out farmers that were doing things in the way that we wanted to cook with. And it led to us not being able to find the types of eggs that we wanted to work with. So we said, what if we have 10 acres and start, you know, raising our own birds? I just wanted a lemon tree in my backyard. And then we met our partners and it you know, blew that idea into a much larger sphere. Um, but then the the interesting thing is once then I got on the land and started cooking from the land regularly, because part of it is like, we're kind of far away from a grocery store. And so you end up just like, we had one rosemary bush the first like couple years. And I remember I cooked everything with rosemary (laughs) and so you start to feel the rhythms of the land and then you come to realize that like the traditional cultures absolutely deserve honoring because what they did was not forget to maintain the connection to mother earth but you realize as you're cooking with mother earth that that's actually the source that's the source of how traditional cultures knew how to do these things. And so then you go directly there, still honoring. And that relationship teaches you how to become a better nourisher of bodies, which is like mm. what the way that I like to look at food. Just to rewind, chronologically you know before there was the biggest little farm before apricot lane was even a glimmer in your eye you were a chef and um and you came to kind of a general realization that the nutrient density of the food was directly correlated with the density the nutrient density of the soil um and um was your vision at that juncture, I mean, you said it was like a 10 acre plot that yeah. wasn't as absurdly ambitious as a 240 acre uh, regenerative farm at that juncture, but you were pretty keen on, um, on a vision of biodynamic and organic farming. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Well, it, I didn't know, you know, even a fingernail worth of information that I know now, but yeah. where I was, was that I knew I knew organic, you know, back then there wasn't such thing as regenerative. It, um, right. all there really was, was this like organic, it's, you know, um, healthier. And, and yet, so I started to learn that like, oh, okay, I have to, I did understand that like, it's about the soil similar to how, um, in our bodies, obviously it's the building of that gut of our body is then what enables the digestion and the nutrients to actually be absorbed within the body. And the earth is the exact same. So I had that understanding of kind of going into farming, knowing that it was about building that soil. But then um, beyond that, I had really only known where you like, how do you learn how to do that then, you know, and I had heard organic. So I started researching that and I realized, though, it's a positive step. It's really just, you know, you can't use this 
toxic synthetic chemical, but you can use this less refined um, version of a like more natural chemical. And and it didn't have anything to do with the soil, really. It mm -hmm. didn't have anything to do with a holistic approach. So I had heard, um, it was actually Tom Cowan, who's a great mind. He had spoken about biodynamics. And so I went on the website and it only took me like 10 minutes of starting to read their, um, I don't know what they, I forget what they call it, but like their manifesto or whatever mm -hmm. their approach is. At, that I knew that that was something that I wanted to build my life towards because it felt like a process of, you know, it would talk about things like um, treating the land of like trying to find the fertility of the land within the land and saving 10% of your land to natively flower so that you have that kind of native intersection with your crops. And so that was like, I want to go there. And then once you start going there and actually building your own farm, you realize that it's actually nobody has the answers for you. It's just like your body. You mm -hmm. then can pull from all of these wonderful tools in your tool chest. So you want to keep learning so that you have biodynamics and now a lot of other things we use. But it's about that relationship and figuring out what this land in this climate wants from you as its steward. Yeah, that's such an interesting point, because while there are certain general precepts that can inform this idea of biodynamic farming or regenerative farming, just like humans have their own bio individuality as it pertains to their own health, specific place has their own bio individuality as it pertains to agriculture. And so, you know, what some techniques that might work one place might not work somewhere else. Now there's obviously, I, I think, you know, you outlined and, and pointed to some of those precepts of essentially a biodynamic farm being able to inspire and generate its own fertility. And there's like techniques like composting and integrating animals and cover cropping and crop rotation. We can talk about kind of some of the techniques that you guys specifically use, but I'm sure that, you know, you had to quote unquote, listen to your specific land to you know jiggle the the key in the lock just right to to open it and wow. um just like everyone has to sort of jiggle the key kind of around their own personal individual health so i think it's a, a really interesting um point so when you took the farm over which was i think it was that in 2011 mm-hmm yes what was the condition of the farm and the soil at that juncture? It was completely devoid of life, like completely. It truly was like a parking lot or something. The soil was so hard. Um, and in my rose colored glasses, it was like the most beautiful place I've ever been in my entire <laughs> life. But um, yeah. really, I just was attracted to like space and the idea of it. But the reality of it was that it was really, really bad. And we just had to, you know, it was one step at a time of faith. And thankfully, back then, we had an amazing mentor named Alan York, who's um, right. was such a funny road to get him to actually help us. He basically kept telling me why I didn't want to work with him for like six weeks before finally I was like, Alan, I have made the decision. I want to work with you. And then right. he finally well, the, the, came on board. It's so funny because that's what the, the great, you know, Zen teachers do. 
they rebuff you and they rebuff you and they rebuff you. And there's all of these kind of stories in, in Taoist and Zen Buddhist history of like, uh, students, you know, chopping off their arms and doing anything they can to get master tutelage. And, um, it's, it's, it's very different than the Western, um, approach to teaching, you know, which is, you know, you're always, the teacher is always trying to get their student to do as much as possible. Yeah. You know, in this way, it's the opposite. You're just like trying to get, you know, um, uh, absorb knowledge from, you know, from Alan and, and, you know, exactly. he came such an kooky, interesting guy. I mean, obviously I didn't know him, but I've seen interviews with him and, yeah. you know, to be connected to that lineage of biodynamic philosophy from him to Alan Savory to even back to Rudolf Steiner, who was writing about it about a hundred years ago. Um, yeah. you know, just to have access to that, um, good for you for your persistence. Cause I'm sure that was, that was pretty, um, influential to have him early on. It was amazing. And he was, uh, we kind of reached him just at the right spot of his life because he had spent in his early days, he learned from like Alan Chadwick and a bunch of really great minds in the industry. Okay. And, um, he then spent a lot of his career just not really doing that kind of like gardening or fruit orchard farming and he instead worked in grapes for a long long time and so yeah. i think we were kind of this amazing i think he was he may not have wanted to tell me that but he was very <laughs> intrigued by what we were because he got to come here and work with you know the crops from his old old or early days and um there was just a beautiful we had like this kindred nature to each other where um I really, it did feel childlike to just be able to kind of play in this space together. And then he was also really hard. Like I remember he would come for a whole week and on Thursday, for whatever reason, Thursday, he always had like a bee in his bonnet and he would, it was like, felt like perfectionism. He would go out and tell me all the things that I was like not doing. And I would get to the end of that day and just have like such a headache. And then Friday he was fine again. It was just Thursday of every week was going to be hell on earth. <laughs> Um, but I learned, I learned so much. I mean, he was teaching us a lens that, you know, we only had the early glimmers of and the things that he was speaking about now, we'll go back and watch these videos Mm. and think, oh my gosh, he was like, yeah, we, you hear it just kind of like I read, um, Rudolf Steiner's agricultural lecture the first Mm -hmm. year of the farm. And I'll go back and like pop into that and realize that like at the, first year on the farm, I thought, I understand, like, I got this. And then now I'm like, I, yeah, you understand it at an an entirely new level. Well, you really feel it more as a product of direct experience versus just kind of intellectually connecting with some of the ideas. Oh, I Um, love how you said that. Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm that way with, you know, um, with a physiological mechanism too. You know, I've read over the last few years, so many medical papers and primary source data and clinical research. And, you know, when I started with it, you know, I could barely understand every other word. And then, you know, you stay with it and, you know, then you only, you know, get confused one out of every four or five words. And then, you know, suddenly over time, I think you began to have a more intuitive sense and a more foundational knowledge, you know, so things kind of make sense within a greater systems thinking mindset. Yeah. 
So, okay, so you arrive on the farm in 2011. The soil is arid and, and desiccated. So what were some of the essential techniques that you leveraged uh, in the early days to begin to regenerate the soil? Yeah, it's um, back then I really didn't know no-till versus, you know, other ways of doing things. But, um, and I really did just, you know, listen to Alan and he would give me like to-do lists at the, for the first year. And I would like be very good student, but, um, looking back, it was what we essentially did because there is no till Alan Mm. didn't agree with that at the beginning, whenever you're dealing with something as dilapidated as what ours was, his approach was that you, you do disturb the soil to give it the nutrition that it needs, there's the raw materials in it. So we, like I remember with Block M, which is the fruit basket that you'll see in the biggest little farm, it's got over 75 different varieties of fruit trees in it. And we did rip the soil, which is you get a you know a machine in there to get down to like 40 inches, I remember. And we wow. put a lot of nutrients in it so that when we were on top, we put them on top and then rip them down in. Now this is on a big scale that I'm talking. And then from there, it was all about getting organic matter into the soil. So we planted the entire block in buckwheat back then. And then Mm. you would, um, you would then, we then planted into the buckwheat and then we used a lot of like mulch around the trees. And then we would, every fall, we would turn that cover crop back into the land. Now, Alan's approach is you do that at the beginning. And I agree with this at this point now. I've We've tried a bunch of different things. And I do feel this is like when you're dealing with concrete, this is a great way to go. You yeah. then stop messing with it because you've gotten enough in there that you're like coming to life. Now you can do it other ways, but if you want to get the timeline to move a little faster, then that's what you do. And I've come to look at um, the like nature left to its own devices is going to regenerate and it's going to do it on a slow, slow trajectory towards that regeneration through all of the cycle that it goes through. When you step into land, and go into agriculture, you are, you are naturally choosing to disturb. There's not, it's, you're forming a relationship. So that I have come to honor that as a stewardship, like a shepherd of the, um, of a flock and to accept the responsibility that that entails and try to live that to my highest light of what I know and learn from my mistakes when I don't. And I find that the land is very forgiving for that effort, that it's not expecting perfectionism out of you, that it's it's wanting to be in relationship with you. And then you can move things much faster. So the way that we were able to get from like total concrete to something that had a biological uh, life cycle to it was through choosing to step into that responsibility. But that's different than someone that's like, I'm no till no matter what, which I respect. It just might take a little bit longer than what we walked. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, it brings up a number of kind of philosophical threads for me. But, you know, I, I look at what you've 
done. And the last time I, I was up there a month ago, I came home and started thinking about it as really the Tao of farming, Aww. you know, that you um, and the Taoists were obviously great students of nature. And, you know, part of the wisdom was studying that nature and then aligning with its current. Yes. But that doesn't mean uninvolvement, as you say, because it's understanding your own integral role as a steward, but also as a participant within its system. And, and so non-interfering is not really an option. I mean, and this is a, a theme in, in, in physics, too, you know, of observer's effect. The second we try to look at an electron and we shine a photon on it, we change its, its behavior. So we have properties ourselves and we are in relationship as part of this greater ecosystem with the soil, with plants, with crops, with animals. And our and the best we can do is refine the skill to harness nature's current to basically apply the rudder down its river and 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 make it better. Um, and this is what, what you guys have done. So when you talk about cover crop. Oh, hang on. I have one more thing yeah, to say yeah. about that. What, what came totally. up for me when you were saying that is like I'm I would consider myself that I live more in the spiritual realm than the physical. I'm one of those that's like bumping my head and have to like <laughs> constantly figure out how to get myself in the physical body. And I feel like what you're talking about is kind of the merging of the physical and the spiritual and that that's yes. like a sweet spot in there that it is about being in the physical, stepping inside of that relationship and then also pulling the wisdom from the spiritual. Yeah. So my trip right now is um, I'm not as concerned with the idea of why we are here, uh -huh. because that's an open question. You can walk into Barnes and Nobles and see 10,000 books on that. I don't I don't think anyone's come to a full conclusion on that. <laughs> but I I am discovering that it is much more useful to excavate how we are here, oh. because as you say, uh, these bigger metaphysical ideas reveal themselves because they are patterned in the physical world, in the material mm. world. So you can look at, uh, you know, the grain of, of wood behind me, which, you know, represents the natural flow of sap. Mm. You know, there is a pattern to ah. that that spontaneously emerges. And you can see that in the swirl of marble or the striation of a cloud or in your muscle tissue or in, you know, the markings in jade or whatever the Chinese have a term for that called Li, mm. you know, which is really, you know, the water's course. And so, um, yeah, I'm just, uh, I, I too, um, am kind of in, but not of this world, you know, like I'm floating yeah. above this and trying, um, and, but I feel like what you are doing, which is studying nature and its patterns, it, it, you know, pulls the curtain back on these greater universal metaphysical truths. So um, anyways, um, I absolutely so, love that. And I agree. Our biodynamic consultant that we use now that Alan had introduced us to, he helps us make all of our preps and things here and see rhythms the way you're talking about and his name's Matthias Baker and he just 
everything that you're saying right there, he could riff. His knowledge bank is so large about just like following all those patterns from a flower to, you know, everything. And he'll go up. We have a little school called the farm school here and he'll go up with the kids and just like help them start to see those patterns inside of everything that they're looking at. And it's just like, that's the whole thing is nature is holding all of these pieces. And just if we can pay attention to it deeply, it's got the answers in there. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you put your thumb on it. It's really about paying attention. It's like looking, you know, at the natural flow of water, let's say down a particular uh, pasture or, or cropland, and then being able to build your irrigation system in harmony with nature, with the natural flow of water. So you don't have to use as much energy. I mean, there's just simple things that you pick up just from being a good observer. Um, so one of the things that when I first came to the farm that struck me, um, was, this managed grazing with animals and paddocks and how you were using animals to contribute to the regeneration of the soil. And can you describe that process a little bit and how it, how it implicates different animals and how it leads to, you know, greater, all of the different kind of positive benefits from water retention to greater microbial density, et cetera. Amazing. Yeah. So this is, um, John really, he built our livestock program, which is, has been really beautiful. So I've learned in a lot of ways, I'm more of a, I kind of came in more of a plant person and he came in more of an animal person. And then it kind of merges together as you go. Cause you realize like that animals in this way of farming, that's the whole integration of them is how you get to where you truly want to go. They are the master restorers of the soil. And, um, they're, so we, uh, we do use rotational grazing. We, um, we kind of mimic the predator prey relationship that you'll find in nature by keeping the animals in, um, smaller sections for a shorter amount of time, which is highly labor intensive to do that. And, um, however, we found our rhythms over time that, uh, the sheep, we actually run through, uh, the orchards mostly that seems to be a really good fit. They, um, serve to literally skirt our trees, which is a process that you have to do in pruning where you bring them up, bring those leaves up higher, but they eat these lemon leaves and the lemon leaves contain uh, properties that help them keep their parasites down. So it's just this symbiotic relationship. Wow. And then they are pooping and peeing where they are and trampling down the um, the the organic matter from the cover crop that has grown down into a thatch that is over top of the land that protects your soil then and allows all of the worms and bugs to be happy and have moisture down there. And then we quickly move them to another area. And then we, with our cows, they run in our pastures. And after the cows go through, the chickens come through and they break up all of that um, poop into um, allow it to like spread out and then more um, integrate within the soil and they will keep the parasites down because they'll eat whatever's in that 
uh, poop that you don't want to be there. So you just kind of ride the wave of finding the symbiotic relationship between the animals that you have and um, the land. And there's a beautiful, you may have read it one time, but I was a vegetarian for a long time and coming back to eating meat was about getting comfortable with the cycle of life. And um, in a book called The Vegetarian Myth, there, the writer, she talks about her trying to become a better vegan by growing her own food. She And I'm supportive of all diets because they all have different reasons why you know they're important in our world. Um, however, she realized that there were only two ways to fertilize. It was either you're pulling from petroleum-based sources or you're pulling from animal-based sources. And when you kind of start to get that, you realize how vital these animals are as a part of your system of building the nutrition in the soil and it becomes a very different dance and then it's not about the choice of whether to eat or not eat meat um, isn't necessarily about their value because you realize you're inside of the cycle of life no matter where you are when you grow an avocado you're killing lots of gophers and bees and butterflies and different things. It's that same concept that we were just talking about, about like being engaged in life. You can't like step out of some of those really tough concepts of life and animals being a part of your system uh, makes those questions be maybe even more front and center. It demands a certain level of equanimity of not assigning advantage or disadvantage to any particular situation because uh, the, the biggest obstacles can end up being some of like the biggest wins. Like, for example, you're talking about like the cows, you know, paddocking the cows and they're pooping. And then you're like, oh, no, the flies have like yeah. put all their larva eggs and there's all these maggots everywhere. Like, what are we going to do? And, you know, it's easy to assign, you know, misfortune to that. And then you're like, no, but wait a minute. Chickens love to eat <laughs> maggots. So exactly. bring the chickens in and you guys develop these awesome like mobile chicken houses that you can move around into these paddocks and you let them go. And then, you know, you're like, oh, great fortune. And, you know, but then you can't get too connected to the advantage because then there's some other disadvantage and it's finding this kind of asymmetrical order um, yeah. in there, this kind of teeter-totter where no one's feet early on the ground. Um, totally. uh, and you're trusting that, yeah. that process. It literally is tr like resting into the process of nature's rhythm. And I feel like you can kind of, yes, I'm doing it truly with the natural world, but like a great businessman is doing a different version of that with different variables and yet still resting into the cycles that they're seeing and whatever their focus is. And I just have yeah. to be kind of really close to the source of where those cycles come yeah, from. <laughs> totally, totally. But there's, you know, there is organic systems. It's really more about, you know, systems thinking. Yeah. So you're very into like systems biology and so yes. am I. Yeah. Um, but it's more like systems thinking because you can have systems thinking and apply it to your org chart within your company. And that is a very, uh, and you can understand, you know, all of the indirect lines that are going on, essentially what I think of as the Buddhist conception of Indra's net, that the universe is essentially 
the, the structure or design of the universe is this infinite web in which every intersection is a crystalline um, diamond of water that reflects all the other intersections. Mm. And so once you, yeah, it's a beautiful, amazing image that I've always been very taken with. Um, but you get to understand the mutual interdependence of all things. And, you know, when you're living on the land the way you do, you know, this becomes, you know, in stark relief. So you've got now all this organic matter, um, you know, onto the land. You've got your cover cropping. And really, I think what you've started to see was like this massive efflorescence of microbial life. Is that right? Yes. It just started to um, just come alive and you know, first you just start to see your first few worms and then you start to see other, you know, pill bugs and different things in there. And then it gets to the point that it extends out from the soil where you're seeing that with, oh my gosh, there's, now we have barn owls and we have great horned owls. And now we have, there's a screech owl. We've never had a screech owl before. And then you have the birds of prey that are coming in because there's more gophers, because there's more food in the soil. And then you have the gopher problem and you have to figure out how to solve the gopher problem. And, yeah. and it just, it truly is your opening Pandora's box, which is scary. And that's why some people keep Pandora's box closed. <laughs> But when you open Pandora's box and start to go through the process that you just described of like, oh, this happens and then this happens and this happens, it is surfing. You're mm. essentially, you're finding a way to ride that. You start to not be so threatened and scared by every shocking thing that feels shocking to you because you actually realize that's like where the passion and the creativity lives inside of that. And then it's following that, that you might keep going up and down, but you're like on this trajectory of greater understanding that gives you a more, um, a more stable place of confidence to know that you can handle anything that comes your way, which is like where life can really blossom. Totally. Uh, and you become much more comfortable in discomfort. You know, yes. you wake up and there's like 10 million snails exactly. on all of your trees. And instead of like freaking out and throwing in the towel, yes. um, you know, you're looking for natural solutions to solve these issues. So maybe go through what were some of like the biggest challenges and how did you find, you know, some of the natural solutions to, to uh, manage them? Totally. The one that people love that's from the film, and we loved it too, is whenever you, um, we learned that our ducks could take care of our snail problem. That was just yeah. like such a foundational like, one where the yeah. snails were just everywhere. And when you get ducks into those areas where the snails are, they will demolish the snails like within seemingly minutes, but probably more like an hour. <laughs> And yeah, so and they, they don't need any garlic butter or anything. No, no, they're just ready to go. So that yeah. one's like a super fun and easy one. Another one is the gophers of learning that the gophers um, were able to be controlled by stopping controlling things that we saw as predators for our animals. So like coyotes, right. you actually welcome and form a relationship with the coyote and you form them with the birds of prey and those things are always eating your gophers and there's um i've read more about um native american theories on 
gophers too, that they actually are creating the channels in the land which draw in rain patterns is their approach. So mm. when you start to see that like, whoa, there is, you, you stop having bad and good because you start to see that like the thing you're labeling as bad is something that needs to be further understand understood in order to integrate it and find its purpose in what the greater whole is. And that's like a wonderful space that has a lot less judgment to it. <laughs> totally. Is yeah. I mean, too. all of a sudden you see gophers that would you'd otherwise maybe associate it with like gnawing at the roots of your trees and being a total nuisance to all of a sudden they're your swale trenchers or your, your key liners yeah, or whatever. Exactly. And, um, and it's amazing because that, you know, that they will find kind of the natural course of how water might flow, um, and aerate your soil. So like, you know, cause for example, one of the things that we have to deal with here in Southern California is drought. Yes. I mean, you guys are an, are on an aquifer, which is a godsend, but that aquifer can dry up. But, you yes. know, then when there are rains, a lot of your neighboring farms and a lot of more industrial farms, they're just seeing that topsoil just run off, right? Totally. But you have created an ecosystem where you're capturing a lot of that water. Can you just maybe 100%. talk about the water retention component of this for a moment because it's so huge. Exactly. You want your, in getting organic matter down into your soil, in having things like gophers be alive so that there's um, holes down into your soil, you are enabling when it rains for your soil to be like a sponge. And that's what mm. you want because when it's super hard, it is basically like concrete. And when the rain hits that, it's just going to surely run off and then go down into um, the barranca and just be carried off of all the land. But if you instead can capture that water, that water then trickles down through the soil into back into the aquifers. That is such an important cycle for us. It's why we want to look at like why, you know, do we really need pavement in this location? Because that's now now they're coming up with wonderful solutions for that where there's more porous um uh materials that people are using in our world it's going to keep improving improving but that's that's what you're wanting to try to do and things that cover crop is such an important part of that process because that's what create what's creating that sponge like effect mm -hmm. yeah so huge this the topic of water ecology particularly you know here in california which People don't always associate with uh, agriculture, but you know, people tend to you know associate kind of the heartland, you know, with these rank on rank, uh, you know, monocrops and stuff. But California, I think, is the biggest agriculture producer in the country. So, you know, dealing with with water retention and water ecology is is, is central to the equation. It's literally um, the first thing that we do. Like right now, we we purchased a small piece of property that closes an easement on the farm. And it's kind of fun to approach it now because we're 11 years in with our understanding in 10 more years, I'll be like, I didn't know anything, but the, <laughs> um, the it's concrete, just like the land was here. And so the first thing we do is go in and listen. So we just spend time over there, like watching what's here, what's growing naturally. And then we start looking at the water. 
Like where does the water run? Where yeah. is there a bunch of damage to the land because of how the water was running? And then we uh, put in some efforts to be able to channel the water where you know we're hearing is best. Yeah. So I, I want to tie um, back some of this Herculean effort to the actual flavor profiles and nutrient density of the food that you're actually creating on the property. So, you know, all of this cover cropping, organic matter, organic compounds, then um, has led to this increase in microbial life. So bacteria and archaea and fungi, all this kind of good yummy stuff that sits kind of in the ground. And essentially metabolizes the organic matter into different kind of minerals and makes minerals more available to the plants and essentially increases the nutrient profile of the plants. Um, is that a fair kind of understanding of what's going on? Very <laughs> fair. There? Yes, okay. that's exactly it. You have more of the micro and macronutrients available to your foods, which then enable all the flavonoids and things that are going to, and this is I'm definitely yeah. not a scientist, but it gets to the point that what I do know is that then I cook with it and eat with it, eat it, and it's dense food. So like I'll eat a kohlrabi from our land and it has like a sweetness to it and it has a density of flesh and a creaminess to it. And then I'll go even to a, a farmer's market because I'm always, we're always competing with ourselves because, you know, we're just here. And so we're like, this kohlrabi is not as good as this one was last year. And yet then I'll go to a farmer's market and get an organic kohlrabi from somewhere else. And it's kind of pithy and um, lacks that flavor. And it's really because it's not necessarily organic. You have to literally focus in on building that soil. What's a kohlrabi? Oh, it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful vegetable. Everyone should know of kohlrabi. It's one of my faves. People here uh, joke with me about how much I like it. But it's just, um, what what family is it in? It'd be like, I believe it's like um, cabbage in, what, what is cabbage is brassica? I don't know. Is it brassica? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. But regardless, it's kind of like a bowl that sits on top of the um, land, has like a sort of almost a jicama meets a potato and uh, I just like to slice it up and eat it raw with like you know hummus or whatever it is. Well I guess I'll ask you is there a discernible difference now in the taste profile of the products of the farm versus like let's say five or six years ago? 100%. I mean, to the point that now it's also about being connected to your land, but I don't really want to eat foods from somewhere that's not <laughs> the land. I mean, it's like the food tastes really good and it has a strong, you know, density of flavor and it's, you know, the land here, which I love. It has, I have a relationship to what it is, but yes, certainly we um, maybe three years ago or so, Nathan, who's um, our director of sales here, he uh, he and I will, the early days, we would just drive around Block M and taste fruits all the time and be talking about when they're ready and when we're ready to sell them. And so we were talking about tomatoes and tomatoes are hard for us to grow. We get, we do have a virus that we'll get and it can get tricky. And so we're always really critical of our tomatoes. And this year I said, you know, maybe get tomatoes from the farmer's market, get a bunch of different varieties and let's like taste them and see what we think. And we came back and of these, like he got like 
I don't know, eight different tomatoes from different places. And there was only one place that was sweeter and more flavorful than what we were doing. And it made mm. me go, oh my gosh, like I, we've literally lost sight of how much flavor comes in over time. But Harry's Berries, Harry's Berries Sun Gold Tomatoes still beat us every time. <laughs> <laughs> they have got well, it down. <laughs> well, you need something to shoot for, yeah, right? You know, yeah, exactly. You, you need something to to raise the bar and keep, your, keep yourself um, curious and, yes. and ambitious. Um, well, so, you know, just to kind of put parentheses around kind of some of the other benefits to the kind of farming that you're doing, just, I mean, and, and it would be a whole other podcast to talk about sort of some of the carbon sequestration yes. components of it, um, that, you know, the land is actually acting almost as, as, as lungs, you know, I think of that metaphor to some degree, you know, we breathe in we're breathing in oxygen, the land is breathing in carbon dioxide and being able to sequester that carbon in the ground. Um, and there's just unbelievable data out there right now showing just even a really relatively small conversion from conventional farming to regenerative farming, what kind of difference that would make in terms of sequestering some of the misplaced carbon in our atmosphere. So huge uh then water retention obviously just a huge one and then you know just like the overall nutrient density of the food you know the mineralization of fiber the fixation of nitrogen um the minis like the minimization of the growth of, of pathogens around the roots and there's so many different things going on there that are like just absolutely amazing and and cool once you kind of get into them but I think, you know, where now you have been able to harness all of that and put it through a creative expression, which is so cool. And I know, you know, John, even though you were very central, obviously, to the creation of the documentary, it is a little bit of his baby, I think. You oh, know? Definitely. And um, and but like now you've birthed. Well, you've already birthed a baby, <laughs> um, but you know that, that you were able to um, and with your team. And I know you yeah. give a lot of credit to your team, but that you were able to harness um, a lot of this knowledge and inspiration and experience into a creative expression. And that's so cool. So can you talk a little bit about kind of what that creative process was like in actually kind of taking the outputs of the farm and then synthesizing it into an actual beautiful cookbook. Oh, yeah, I will. Thank you for asking. So, um, yeah, you're definitely right. Biggest Little Farm is beautiful. I loved that it kind of showed our story to ourselves. Like, I, I don't think I understood my story until then I saw it. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, oh, my gosh, that actually is what happened. That's, you know, right. it was <laughs> A little um, dramatized around the well, edges, but yeah, more or less. Yeah. Course, more or less there. And some of them had deeper, darker places that were, you know, yeah, it's, sure. it's not easy yeah. to build something. Yeah. But they, um, yeah, so in the early days, you know, I had been a chef. And so I really, mm -hmm. and I was a private chef, too. I wasn't doing it on some large catering scale. So. I was used to creativity being like, um, make a pie. And I really would love the satisfaction of cooking that you would, you know, cook that you'd grocery shop, you'd cook that day. And then at the end of the day, you get to eat it. And then all of a sudden I found myself on this farm and I was like, whoa, this is creativity on a much larger scale. And I had to learn how to create 
with a team, you know, have it be that's the extension through to the creativity that you're orchestrating in a different way. And then when the film came out, I actually had a friend approach me and say, now I want to hear your side of the story. And she, she wanted to connect me to an agent to talk about a memoir. And I was like, I do not have a memoir. <laughs> that is not something that I have anything yeah. to say. I'm living right now, yes. right here. That's not, I can't deal with memories. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So I, um, but I did talk to the, the woman who um, I said, well, I've always wanted to come back around to be able to write a cookbook. That was like mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, um, the early day dreams. And she said, well, you can do it. And I said, no, I don't. I do not have time to be able to do that. And she said, well, work with a writer. And I was like, no way. I am entirely too creatively controlling to be able to do that. And she <laughs> said, uh, well, I have a person. So she said, let me just send you these books and see what you think. And she sent me uh, sourdough by Sarah Owens, who's the person mm. who then I did end up writing the book with. And I read this book and I saw that it was a person who understood the kind of like the world of microbes through the lens of both being a gardener, but also being a um, baker, a sourdough baker. And we kind of had the same path of obsession with food. And I took a right and started a farm and she took a left and started a bakery. So I talked to her. I started to think, oh my gosh, I think I can do this if I build a team in the same way that I built a team around the farm and worked in that kind of expansive creativity. And so I did. We had our culinary team here who I've been cooking with for 10 years and working with. We had Sarah, who is amazing. We had um, Andy Reville, who's uh, a was a gardener for us. And then I discovered through us getting to know each other that she was an amazing fine artist. And so she ended up drawing all of the, um, we have yeah. illustrations of all the avocados, the chickens, all the colors of the eggs, the um, all the citrus on the farm. She did some step-by-step -step drawings and it was through. And then when I was working with Sarah, cause you obviously write a lot when you work with a writer too, cause you have to get your voice. You have to, but Sarah is what she's so amazing at is harnessing information. She almost has this like historical ability and quality to her writing. And she, uh, I had her come out here. It was during COVID, which was all, everything was tricky. And, um, but she met with all of our different team members on the farm because I wanted the book to feel like a reflection of the entire team. I wanted them to open the book even more so than the public mm. and be like, I see us, I see what we've done. And so she did that and then um, collated all that information together. So then I was able to come in and really build the personal story element into what it was. And it was a beautiful, I truly will say that it was one of the more grace-filled, easy, not easy, <laughs> you know, it's hard to write a book, but yeah. it had, it was like, it flowed just in a way that it was meant to come out. Cause I never could have done it with all the other workload and my kid, like, that's like hard line. I got to have time for that. So, but it all, it all came together and I'm grateful for it because I truly am proud of it. Yeah. Well, the product is, is certainly a reflection of that flow. And I, I like the, I very much like the way that the book is architected almost around the physical farm. So you have your larder yeah. and the garden and the pasture and the orchard. And obviously some of that, um, 
some of the fermentation or the uh the and the baking are are clearly represented there's a a great sourdough starter in there with rye flour and um and you know we do so we do a lot of fermentation here just at home we do a lot of sprouting at home mm-hmm. uh we have a sourdough starter so there you know we make those wonderful big bulls um, yeah which uh, i know there's a recipe in there in the book for, for that too Sorry. so just to kind of timestamp our conversation so we're talking it's beginning of december or december 7th mm-hmm. so it's this book is right on time for holiday season um, so if there is any kind of hot, special holiday recipes, uh, in the book that you would want to tag that might inspire, uh, folks as they kind of hunker down with family and do a little more cooking and spend more time around the communal table, anything that you could suggest we focus on? That's a really great question. I'm actually grabbing my book right now because I need yeah, to, I, no this pressure. Is I got to do my like <laughs> holiday cooking, um, or my holiday planning, but, um, you're, I would say any of the, oh, oh, you're going to have to make it seasonal, but our short rib recipe that we have in Mm. here, you're going to have to flip some of the, like, don't put the peas in, flip with some winter vegetables in there, which is really easy to do. But that is like the most kind of succulent sit around. And it's easy because you're going to be able to do that ahead of time. You aren't like taking out the turkey and having to carve it last minute. So that would be a really beautiful one. Um, you talked about some of those fall things that are really nice uh, as far as the um, the fig, crist- the, yeah, the crostini the that you did. fig crostini or the, the fig jam, the blackberry fig jam with the ricotta and the crostini. My God, ridiculous. This so is a good, good one. This is um, a chocolate persimmon pudding, which you again could do totally ahead of time. But that's going chocolate persimmons. It's actually not. There's not chocolate in it. Chocolate persimmon is a variety, and it doesn't have any chocolate flavor to it. But you're gonna. Um, it's going to be an astringent persimmon. So it's the kind that you wait until they get pudding like before you eat it. So it's like the perfect start for making a pudding. And that's just mm-hmm. like a delightful cup of amazingness. Cherimoya mm-hmm. bread pudding is amazing. That's uh, something that you could serve for dessert that uh, cherimoya is tricky to work with because you, um, when you bake with it, it can often like form this bitter flavor. Cause I was like set on making a cherimoya uh like almost like a banana bread, a cherimoya bread, and it didn't so much work out. But when you put it in um, the bread pudding, we kind of found the right recipe to make it really delicious. So, and then go for any of the chicken recipes. We we spent so much time on all of those, and they're um, they're amazing. Yeah, there's such a great selection in there. Like I mentioned, we had the the fennel lemon one, which is like crisped up the skin, just amazingly perfect. And, you know, you, it also just filled the whole kitchen dining room all afternoon with the most like delectable perfume, you know, it's it's like one of those things, if you're home and you have some time and, and you can, you know, afford to slow down, for a moment mm-hmm. um there's so much gratification in in these kind of long lingering meal preparations that can you know kind of spread out over the course of a day and you can get your kids and your other family members involved and uh, like you said have a participant oriented you know holiday season exactly i uh, feel like you have to do it you either have to 
prep yourself where you have it ahead of time. Cause Christmas is tiring. Yeah. Like anyone who has a kid, you're up at like five cause they're so excited. And you'd been up till like 1130 getting, you know, everything yeah. done. <laughs> and so <laughs> you need like, we have a great, there's a wonderful meatloaf in there. That's really beautiful. And that like, you need a meatloaf that you've prepped like two days beforehand. And then you just pop it in for Christmas dinner. That's hmm. you gotta, yeah. you gotta keep it easy. You gotta keep it easy. Yeah. Well, Molly Chester, it's such a delight. I love uh, being in your orbit generally and in your presence uh, specifically today. Mm -hmm. You know, what you have been able to accomplish is, uh, is such an unbelievable model, I think, mm -hmm. for the rest of the world. And you're really, um, I think, you know, leaving some, some important footsteps for those of us uh, are interested to follow and so 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 grateful for your work and again just congratulations on this stunning stunning book um the apricot lane farms cookbook i'll hold it up again but can you tell us uh you know where would be the best place to to find this i'm sure it's it's everywhere on the normal places but any any place you want to direct us to Right now, it's in all the normal places. We aren't yet selling it off our site. That'll be sometime next year. We definitely, on our site, have a list of like all the typical and a couple kind of indie sites that people can go to, and so they can go there to find it out. And while they're there, we have an amazing avocado oil promotion going on right now, so they can oh, yeah. check that out too and um, get a couple bottles for the holidays, but it's like on sale as it's not normally, and that's from our beautiful Hass Avocados. And so oh. it's a and good so you're one. distilling, you're making that olive oil. Are you making it? Um, do you have a partner who's actually making it and using your avocados or how are you doing it? Yeah. So we, um, it used to be, we're actually looking for a presser for next year, but we have uh -huh. a um, facility locally here that we use. They've just closed, but it was called, it was done by, um, it was called Ava Pacific done by a company called Mission and they've moved mm. to Mexico. So I think we're going to be down in San Diego pressing next year, but we do take our hass and whenever they're at like peak and press them. And this avocado oil is like truly a different experience. Many times what you're getting at the stores is a refined oil. And, um, this is a completely unrefined avocado oil and, um, so good. We do have an olive oil too. Um, right now the trees are young enough that it's usually in small quantities. So that will come in the, um, like January, February, we'll post that on the site. But right now, yeah, we're promoting that avocado oil for Christmas. So people can come check us out and get a bottle. Yeah. All right. Well, Molly, have a absolutely delectable holiday with Thank you God. and your yummy family and your whole community. And, uh, you know, I guess in closing, I'll also just say, um, you know, I'm into community. That's kind of been the thread throughout my whole entire life, whether I was putting on big festivals at Wanderlust or with my current concern, which is commune. And we have our little, um, our little uh, nest up in Topanga where, you know, we like to, to congregate like-minded folks. And, you know, every, I will say just the role of community, um, in what you do at Apricot Lane is, is, uh, is in full effect, you know, and it's beautiful to see how you involve everybody there on the farm, all the people that are give the tours. I can tell, you know, they feel so empowered. Um, and, uh, and I know you do all these big community, um, dinners. Um, I think every Wednesdays you were, you were doing them for 
very long time just with people kind of your whole internal team on the farm so you've really just created a beautiful ecosystem in in, in every aspect um and again it's just a, a beautiful inspirational model so oh. thank you and to be continued i hope thank you jeff and quite honestly that admiration goes both ways because your mind i just love being even taking the time to talk today because you're you are on those threads and connecting them in a way that everything that you say inspires me back <laughs> and i love your family too and i look forward to every time we get to spend together so just keep doing what you do we'll just both keep up the work yeah we'll just keep <laughs> up the work i will say skylar is the number one person on the molly chester fan oh, club I uh, love she's, her. Uh, she's your biggest fan I couldn't love her more. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Molly Chester. Be sure to check out the recipes we mentioned in the Apricot Lane Farms cookbook. And I also deeply recommend the documentary Biggest Little Farm that you can watch on most streaming platforms. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you have a sense, perhaps, for how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep the advertisements to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with ideas, suggestions, and criticism of the constructive ilk at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Fred, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs> <laughs>